So one of the things that um, I've noticed is I sit and have listened to many sermons over the years is that um, you get to know a lot about the personal life of the person who preaches. You get to learn a lot about their family because they always use their family and themselves in anecdotes. And so um, today, don't worry, Barb and Leah, you're safe. Um, Today, I want to shed a little light. It's not a very profound um, realization of who I am, but I'll just say that I am a a sucker for the movie Field of Dreams, okay? It's it's corny, it's smaltzy, I know. It's full of a lot of questionable theology. I I get all that, but every time I watch it, it just kind of pulls me in. And I'm going to pretend that some of you don't know that movie and just real briefly say what it is. There's a farmer in Iowa named Ray Kinsella, and he hears a voice one day in his cornfield, and it says, build it, and he will come. Well, over the course of that movie, from that moment on, he hears the voice again a couple of times, telling him different things. He sees visions, and he winds up plowing under his crop, building a baseball field, Shoeless Joe Jackson and a bunch of other dead baseball players come and play baseball on that field. The voice tells him to go to Boston, and he browbeats this retired, cynical, radical writer from the 1960s into this mysterious quest. They go across the country. They encounter the ghost of a, of a dead country doctor whose dream it was to play baseball, and they all go to his field in Iowa. Great movie, huh? And so... They're there, and there's a point in the movie where everything has come together. It's no longer a mystery. Ray has been vindicated because he was treated like Noah before. You built a baseball field in the middle of your corn patch, and, and he's vindicated. And at that point, Shoeless Joe Jackson turns to the writer and says, You, come with me. We're going out there, and I want you to tell people what's out there, and I want you to write about it and come back. And Ray's there. And Ray Kinsella looks at him and he gets angry. He says, whoa, wait a minute. I'm the one that took all the risk. I did everything that was asked of me and I never once said, what's in it for me? And Shoeless Joe says, what are you saying, Ray? And Ray says, I'm saying, what's in it for me? And at that moment, we've got exposed two issues, and they relate to this passage we just read. One of those is that Ray had fallen into a trap that because he was faithful, he was due a reward. And the second is that he misunderstood the purpose behind everything that had happened, and he didn't understand his role in it. And that's exactly what we've got here in Isaiah talking to the people of Israel. All right. So just pause for a minute, and I don't want to take this analogy too far. Shoeless Joe Jackson's not a prophet. Uh, Ray Kinsella is not an ancient Israelite, and heaven is not a baseball field in Iowa. We're all straight with that. But it is a helpful way for us to kind of walk through this passage. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the prophet, I want to look at the people, the purpose, and the promise in in this passage. So let's start with the prophet. 
And I want to dwell on that for a couple of minutes. In verse 1, it says, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. So this is the call of the prophet. This is from God. And so let's just reflect a little bit on the office of prophet in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, a prophet had one job and one job only, and that was to speak the words of the Lord, to be his spokesperson, to be his mouthpiece. So that was their one job. Now, they didn't volunteer for this job. They were called to that job. They were called by God to that job. They weren't appointed by the kings. They weren't appointed by the priest. It's not a role that was inherited by anybody's family or by a particular tribe. There were no pre-qualifications for being a prophet. They weren't regular teachers of the word. That's what the priest did. And they weren't all men. And when you read in, in the Bible, the word of the Lord came to Joel. The word of the Lord came to Amos or Micah or Nahum. That is the calling of God to be a prophet. The second thing about prophets is that they were called to a specific task at a specific time and for a specific audience. Daniel and Nathan were prophets and they advised kings. Jonah was a prophet and he didn't even prophesy to the Israelites, he prophesied to the Assyrians. Jeremiah spent 40 years prophesying to the people of Israel and warning them of their sin and the impending disaster that was awaiting them. Prophets suffered for their role. Part of God's call to Ezekiel, if you remember when Phil preached on that, was for him to lie on his side for a year, over a year before he began his ministry. Um, Jeremiah was put in stocks. He was thrown into a cistern and left for dead because of his prophecy. Hosea was commanded to marry an unfaithful woman and to remain married to her. Amos made his living and subsided by gleaning figs after the harvest. These people weren't getting rich. They weren't getting famous. They suffered for what they did. And they were often dishonored and unpopular. If you want to be popular, you tell people what they want to hear. But a prophet didn't do that. That wasn't what God called them to do. They had to bear the hard truth. And John the Baptist is, really, if you think about it, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he lost his head because he offended those in power. So it's always worth it to pause a minute before you read the prophets and think about who they were and what they did and what it means to us. So here we see... Isaiah's call to cry aloud and not hold back. And I've got to tell you, you know, if I have an unpopular opinion, the last thing I want to do is get up and shout it to everybody, right? We do not want to cry out. And when I have to confront somebody with a hard truth, my tendency is to take it easy, to kind of pad that a bit. But he says, do not hold back. So that is his call. And it's very clear as I said, he's, he's a specific call, audience, and time. And the audience is clearly the Jewish people, the house of Jacob. And his message is about their sin. So there we have our prophet. And now let's turn and look at the people. Verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. 
as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near um, to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So let's look at this list of things that God characterizes these people by. They seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. They ask for righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to their God. Those are a bunch of bad sins, wouldn't you say? No. How do we sum that up? It's very easy. They went to church. They liked to do church. They wanted a relationship with their God. But right in the middle of it all is a big as if. They did all this as if they acted righteously. They did all this as if they followed his commands. And so there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect with what they did as a church-going people and the way they acted otherwise, how they truly treated God and others. And this, is, this disconnect is called hypocrisy, right? It's not matching up your words or your deeds together. And this is a major theme of Isaiah. In fact, in the first chapter, God says this to his people. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of the convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And then later in Isaiah, as part of this theme, he says in, verse, in chapter 29, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment by men. So hypocrisy is not limited to the ancient Jewish culture. The world will always throw hypocrisy at Christians and the church. Always do that. And to be quite honest with you, we're often guilty of that. And I'm not here to give you a solution because I don't think there really is one. There is no cure for that. Because why? We are imperfect people. We live in a fallen world. We will often be inconsistent between what we say and what we do. That doesn't mean we take pride in it. No. We can deal with it. And how do we deal with that? We deal with it by repenting when we do. We deal with it by being humble in the exercise and the proclamation of our faith. And we do it by forgiving others when we see that very same sin. (laughs) We deal with it by forgiving others when we see that very same sin. We can grow and we can change. We are being sanctified day by day. But what is sanctification? It's a process. And it's a process that's going to change us little by little, day by day. And the only way that process works 
is, it's a process, process that requires repentance, humility, and forgiveness. That's how we're going to deal with it. But is that how the people in Israel dealt with it when they were called out for their hypocrisy? Let's just say no. Because what they did instead is they pushed back. And in their pushback, they pointed with pride to their practice of fasting. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? All right, so why do you think they pointed to fasting as something to make themselves righteous before God? It's because it requires a lot of them. It requires a lot of you. It requires some personal sacrifice. So that's something you can take pride in. But fasting, let's just take a minute here. Fasting is a spiritual discipline, like um, prayer, like reading of the Word. Fasting has been established by God, and it's used throughout the Old Testament and the New. Often you'll see it as preparation for an important event. In Judges, they fasted before battles. Uh, Esther uh, called for a fast before she had to confront the king. Um, Jesus, we know, fasted for 40 days in the wilderness before he began his public ministry. Paul and Barnabas fasted before they began their first missionary journey. And fasting is really the denial of one thing in order to make room for another. We deny ourselves food and fill that with prayer, with seeking God's blessings, with discerning God's will. Fasting reminds us that we have and we need a provider. Fasting should humble us, and fasting should sharpen us. And like the other religious practices that we looked at earlier that the people did, seeking him daily, uh, delighting to draw near to God, fasting is a good thing. It is a discipline. It is a part of true religion. It's a prescribed ritual by God. It is a means of grace. It is not a transaction. It is not a down payment with an expected reward or return at the end. Why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Why have we done this and you don't answer us? What's in it for me? That's what they're saying. Well, God answers them. He gives an answer to that. He says, uh, I have seen your fast. And um, he says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. So when it says you seek your own way, literally it's talking about when you fast, you're taking care of your own business. You're conducting your business. You're not seeking God. You're not seeking his blessings. You're taking care of your stuff, even though you're fasting. It's not a fast of the heart. And not only are you not seeking God and doing your own business, in doing so, you are ruthless over those that owe you. You take advantage of others. You drive all your workers cruelly. You pick fights with your business associates and with your neighbors. You are so evil in your dealings, even with each other, that you physically assault and beat others. I remind you of what we read in Isaiah 1. 
Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And in chapter 3 of Isaiah, in talking about taking advantage, the Lord, it says, the Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you, elders and princes, who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. So you've got to ask the question, how did the practice of their religion make any difference in their life? Because it apparently didn't. And the people didn't see the disconnect. They didn't even make that connection between their rituals and their lives. Not only did they maintain their unjust hearts during the fast, but he also asked in verse 5, Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread a sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Again, it's clear that if they had truly humbled themselves and not just spread sackcloth and ashes, if they had truly humbled themselves, they would not have acted like they were acting. Instead, what they did was they put on a show of humility and repentance. And yet they acted pridefully and without mercy. And this show is offensive. It was offensive, and that kind of show is offensive to God. Our rituals that we do in church, that we do as Christians, they don't mean anything in and of themselves. They have meaning only as they represent or or they are filled with the true worship of the heart, if they're filled with true repentance, and if they're filled with true surrender to God, or at least a willingness to do those things, at least a willingness to be surrendered, a willingness to be led, a willingness to repent. Uh, To paraphrase Matthew Henry, the show of religion is not acceptable to God without the substance of that religion. You cannot claim the honor that's associated with an expression of faith if you will not submit to the power of that faith. So, why are we in church? What brings us here? What's the application? It's easy to point fingers back the many thousands of years ago and say they had it wrong. What, What are we doing? Are we going through the motions of ritual? Are we here for fellowship? To listen to a good sermon? Um, To get relief from a stressful life? To get into singing? Are we looking for somebody to feed us? Why are we here? What is the purpose of worship? What is the purpose of prayer? What's the purpose of fasting? Fortunately, God gives us an answer. In verse 6, Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? So reading that, it sounds like our behavior, a change in our behavior, is the reason we come. 
And yes, doing good and doing right should be the outflow of our faith. But that, even doing those good things, just like the rituals of religion, isn't enough. And I don't think that's being said here. Because you can do all these good things, just like that list of other good things, including fasting that the people did. You can do all these good things. You can feed and clothe and house people that need it. But you can do it, and we should, but you can do it all and still despise and have contempt for and even hate the people that you serve. It's true. The world is full of people that help but also don't like what they're doing. They don't like the people they're serving. So instead, I think what we're being called to do is change our hearts. And only Jesus and the Holy Spirit can do that. We can't muster that power ourselves. And it's what God has done for us. So if you look at this, think of what God has done for us. He loosed the bonds of wickedness by dying in our place. He broke our yoke by forgiving us of our sins. We were oppressed and in slavery to sin and the evil one, and Jesus has set us free. Given, he's given us the bread of heaven. He, we have a place prepared for us in his Father's house, and he has clothed us with robes of righteousness. And he's done all that for us through Jesus. And this isn't even something that we wanted when he did it for us. So what we needed and what we need is also what the world needs. And it's that love. It is that same love that can set us free. And when we truly grasp how deep that truth is, how deep that love is, when we truly understand that, and then when we embrace that truth deeply, that's the only way and the only time that we can truly love each other. It's the only way and time that we can truly love God, and it's the only way and time that we can truly love the unloved. When we embrace that truth and understand that truth, then we can truly serve each other, we can truly serve God, and we can truly serve the poor and the needy. Now, we can prioritize our resources to do real social justice, and we should. But not because it makes us feel better, not because we look good to others, not because we can save anybody by doing that. But we do it because we believe in not just the show, but the substance of our religion and our faith. By God's will, if we can align our faith with our actions, then the blessings of God flow to us and they flow through us to others. And they are rich blessings indeed. Your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke in your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. 
and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. He make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. That's rich blessing indeed. So by application, and to explain the title, we need to move beyond what? By application, in all of your life, in every aspect of your life, it matters what you do. But it matters just as much how you do it and why you do it. We can learn that here. The second is I'm not, I don't want you to think I'm speaking against the rituals of the church or the things that we're called to do and the disciplines of our faith. I'm not. They are important. But as I said, they're only important when they're full of their intended meaning. meaning. And I am realistic about this. I know, because I don't, always come to church full of fire. I don't always do my readings or do my prayer time. And if I do, I don't always do it with conviction. And I know you're in the same way. There are seasons in your life where it's hard to do these things. But if you will at least approach those rituals and the disciplines with an open mind and an open heart and say, maybe God will show me something today. Maybe he will speak to me through these things today. And just be willing for God to do that. Then he can change you. If you're willing to be changed, he can change you. And so that's why ritual is important. They continually put us in front of the Lord. They continually put us there. And the degree to which it's meaningful is the degree to which our hearts are open to that. Now, the last bit of application is that we still have something to build. Ray Kinsella, after his little pity party of what's in it for me, he turned and he learned why all those things had happened, why he built the field. And it wasn't so Shoeless Joe could have a place to play. It wasn't what Ray Kinsella thought it was. And that there was a purpose for him And as the film ends, you realize that the field has a purpose for many people. Verse 12 here says, Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This was meaningful to people who heard this while Jerusalem was in ruins and their temple had been torn down. It's important to me, my profession is in historic preservation, and to think that this is a blessing of God to restore streets in which people dwell means something to me. But it means something to us as well, right here, right now. We are a church in transition. We aren't ancient. We aren't in ruins. But we have a foundation of many generations to raise up. And that is the church's one foundation, Jesus Christ. We are being used to build his kingdom. And we'll be able to do it when we can align our minds, our hearts, and our actions in love to God, to each other, and to a hurting world. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the word that you have given us. I thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. 
and that it can change our very lives. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here to help apply this word. Where I have misspoken, I pray that you would defeat those words, but where truth has been spoken, I pray that you would apply them to each of our hearts. And be with us now as we fellowship with each other, as we continue to worship you, but also be with us as we leave this place so that we can be a light that shines for others, so that we can love each other, love you, and love our neighbors with a true and abiding love. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.